Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. The Old Testament book of Jeremiah and Jeremiah chapter number 31. Jeremiah and chapter number 31. We're continuing with our series of the Millennial Kingdom, and we're in the nuts and bolts of it. We're starting to explain more of the details of the Millennial Kingdom. And part of what we're doing right now is finishing a a set of four messages dealing with the idea of the framework, the reason why the Millennial Kingdom exists. And the reason why is found in what we call the covenants. There are four covenants that was given to the Hebrew people inside of the Old Testament. And then we find that the Millennial Kingdom is the fulfillment of those four covenants. The four covenants are going to be the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian or the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Now, we've already set some <clears throat> precedent before speaking about this covenants that we talked about, the Abrahamic covenant, that God had promised a people for all time. The land covenant that God promised them to have the land for all time. The Davidic covenant is he promised them a king forever and a kingdom forever. Then there is one more covenant that is listed here. And we find it here in the book of Jeremiah chapter 3. 31. The book of Jeremiah chapter 31, and if you wouldn't mind, notice with me in Jeremiah 31 and in verse number 31. Jeremiah 31, 31, the Bible says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother. Or they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. And with the Lord's help, we come here if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, and mark a phrase that we find in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, and notice with me in verse 31, where God calls this a new covenant. A new covenant. And with this, we're going to hit the fourth of these covenants that are related to the Abrahamic covenant. And we see the fourth one is called the new covenant. The new covenant. Covenant. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And thank you for the great privilege it is to be here and to explore your scripture. I'm asking that you would just help us to have a good understanding of this covenant and see how it relates to us and how it relates to the millennial kingdom and that we could see what a wonderful and amazing God that you are. Lord, give us understanding even now. And we love you in Jesus name. Amen. Well, if you don't mind, let's just examine this passage really quick, and then we're going to go look at some other passages and explain a little bit more of this new covenant, but just seeing what this says in Jeremiah. Now, remember, Jeremiah, what is happening is that the children of Israel have been divided into two different nations, the northern nation of Israel or Samaria, whichever they're both called, the northern kingdom, was destroyed in 722 BC. And now in Jeremiah's day, the Babylonians are fixing to come and destroy and wipe out the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. And so God here is giving some promises, trying to give some hope through Jeremiah to say that there's hope in the midst of all of this. And with this context in mind, notice with me in verse number 31 again. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, implied, if you're going to have a new covenant, there has to be an old covenant. Now, remember the word covenant carries the idea of an agreement of... <laughs> of a contract between two parties. Notice in verse 32 is God now contrasts that old covenant, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. So in verse 32, it is now referencing an old covenant. This old covenant is where God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He brought them to a certain mountain by the name of Sinai, and there God gave them a listing of 613 laws. And the basis of these laws was if you want to be righteous, if you want to be perfect, if you want to quote unquote earn your way into glory, into heaven, you have to be perfect and keep each one of these laws. Now, the heart of these 613 commandments is what we would call the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments we're very familiar with. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not bear false witness. Well, in order to keep, <laughs> if there was a contract, God says, this is what I'm ordering you to do. You have to keep these laws or there's consequences. Well, part of the laws was that they were never to tell a lie. Well, anytime they broke that covenant once, they've broken the entire covenant. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments that we are to honor our father and our mother. We're supposed to obey our folks. Well, anytime we've disobeyed that covenant, we've broken that covenant and you cannot restore it. We've broken it and that's what God is relaying to them. The Bible says to take the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Now, whereas for us as church going folks, that's not as big of a deal for us because we observe the Lord's day and not the Sabbath day. But for the Jewish people, even today, an Orthodox Jewish person, this is a very big law to keep. And so they work very hard to keep the law. In order to keep the Sabbath day according to their rituals, an Orthodox Jewish person must not light a fire on 
the Sabbath day. Well, most of us don't have to worry about starting a fire. However, they've applied it to the idea of turning on or off a light. That if you turn on a light during the Sabbath day, you have broken the Sabbath day. You have done work. Well, that's a big deal because if you're anything like a traditional house with a father, turn off the lights. Don't leave the lights on. Well, for them, they had an excuse. What they would have to do is because the Jewish day would not begin at midnight. It would actually begin at six o'clock in the afternoon before. So on Friday afternoon at six o'clock is the beginning of their Sabbath day. Now, in order not to break that law, what they would do is before the sun set or before six o'clock, what they would have to do is they would go through the house and turn on or turn off the lights that needed to be on or off for that next day. Well, that's a big deal because if you forgot to turn on a light, guess what? You couldn't turn it on. You'd be breaking the Sabbath. Well, that's a lot of work, isn't it? Then you come to the idea of your refrigerator. What happens when you open up your refrigerator? The light comes on. Well, that's considered work. You can't allow the refrigerator to do work on the Sabbath day. So what they would have to do, an orthodox, strict Orthodox Jewish family in today's era in order not to break the Sabbath by allowing the light come on, is that before six o'clock on Friday, they would have to open the refrigerator and unscrew the light bulb. So every time you open the door on the Sabbath day, it wouldn't turn on. That means you would just have to look in the darkness to try to find that sandwich or hope that things aren't expired or whatever you would have to do. That, that's a big deal. That's a lot of work. That makes it so it's not a day of rest. It's a day of stressing out. In order to obey the Sabbath day, you can only take a certain number of steps away from your door. Well, if we were to honor the Sabbath day, most of us couldn't make it to church because we all live in Green Bay for the most part of us. We would have to break that law in order to come to church. Well, that's a big deal. There's a lot that goes to it for an Orthodox family. And yet the Bible says that once you broke one of the laws, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. And the Bible says for the wages of sin is death. So here was their covenant system that they had. God said, here is a list of laws. You obey every single one of them or you deserve death. Well, I told a lie one time. You deserve death. Well, I disobeyed my folks one time. You deserve death. Now, we know that God gave those laws because they, knowing they couldn't live perfect, not to be mean to them, but in order to show that they're not perfect and they need help. That the law is our schoolmaster. That was the setting up of the law. God never intended the law to be fully kept. He used it as a standard bearer of his holiness. To show that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no not one. So as God is now setting up a new covenant. He now compares it to the old. Now the old covenant or what we would call the Mosaic law. Is not based off of the Abrahamic covenant. That's a big deal. Why is that a big deal? Because remember the Abrahamic covenant was a promise that God made to himself concerning Abraham. So that means the other extensions of that law, the Palestinian or the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant all have that same basis that God made a promise to himself concerning Abraham and his seed. 
That means the new covenant is not a covenant between God and the people as much as it's a covenant to him about himself concerning the people. Does that make sense? The Mosaic law is not based off of that. It was a covenant between God and the people where God says, you obey this law or you deserve to die. Well, that sounds kind of mean, but God is trying to set up a standard. We're all sinners in need of a savior. He did not expect that Mosaic law to be kept. It was always used as a standard bearer. And so now it's contrasting the new law covenant with the old covenant. The Mosaic covenant is flawed. The Mosaic covenant can never be kept. The Mosaic covenant requires that we all deserve death. Whereas the new covenant is something completely different. Notice in verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write the law in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So what we understand here is that God promised to do something specific to Israel, that he was going to give them forgiveness of sins, but not just stop there, that God was going to write his law on their hearts. What does that mean? That means that instead of having a list of rules to live by, All we have to do is follow after God, follow after Christ, and we will automatically do what is right. See, the Christian life is not a checklist of do's and don'ts. All it is is saying follow after God, and if you follow after God, you're going to do what's right. God makes it simple. Aren't you glad you don't have to memorize a whole list of 613 laws to make sure that you're right with God? It's just as simple, are you following after him? God makes it simple. We make things complicated. Now with that backdrop, let's explore a little bit more about this new covenant. The first thing I want to show you is the new covenant revisited. The new covenant reaffirmed rather. The new covenant reaffirmed. Turn with me to the next major book in the Bible. So Jeremiah Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37 if you wouldn't mind. Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, Ezekiel is a contemporary of Jeremiah. Ezekiel was one of the people that were taken away in about 605, 603 BC. He was kidnapped by the Babylonian Empire and transferred into Babylon itself. And so as Ezekiel is with this crowd of people, God calls Ezekiel to be the pastor of those um, Uh, reassigned people, those people who are now in Babylon to be their pastor. And so the same time that Jeremiah is preaching in Jerusalem, Ezekiel is inside of Babylon preaching the same message. Look to God, look to God, God still has hope. In fact, Jeremiah and Ezekiel would often encourage each other with letters. Keep going, keep going, keep preaching, keep going. And so it's no, (coughs) it's amazing that God would give Jeremiah and Ezekiel the same message. 
the message of the new covenant. That at this time, the people are being punished because of their sin. They're being punished because they're not looking to the Lord. They're trusting other gods. And so Jeremiah and Ezekiel are saying, God's going to do something with you. He's going to bring you to himself. He's going to change your heart. He's going to bring you salvation, forgive you of your sins. He's got something planned for you. And so in Ezekiel 37, we see the new covenant once again reaffirmed, restated with a little bit more details. Notice with me in Ezekiel 37 verse 21. Ezekiel 37 and verse 21. And say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. So notice this is going to be that reaffirming of what we would call the land covenant. That God says he's going to take them from wherever they're scattered and bring them back to the land that God promised to them. Remember that this land is going to extend from Iraq all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, from Turkey all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula and Egypt, that God says all of this land is going to be theirs. And as a reminder, I'm going to keep my promise and bring the people into the land that I promised them. Notice with me verse 22. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. Now pause. This is a big promise too. Remember that the new covenant is not given to the Jewish people alone, but to the Hebrew people. Remember that the Jewish people are just an extension of one specific tribe or division of the Hebrew people as a whole. Remember that Israel as a nation had Saul as its first king. Saul was a king after the people's own heart. After that, they had David, who was the king after God's own heart. After David, you had Solomon. After Solomon, Solomon had a son by the name of Rehoboam, who was very foolish in his decisions. So under Rehoboam, the kingdom was divided to the northern kingdom of Israel or Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had <laughs> its first ruler as Jeroboam. And the northern kingdom had 18 kings. All of them were evil. And finally, God was tired of them and in 722 BC under the Assyrian Empire destroyed the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Israel had 18 kings. Five of them were good. The rest were evil, wicked, neutral. And finally, God destroyed the southern kingdom of Israel in 586 BC by the Babylonians. Now, for a long time, these two countries were divided. What God is saying is, I'm going to regather everyone, not just the Jewish people. The Jewish people are people that would come from Judah or that southern kingdom. They were the remnants of the tribe. People will often say the lost tribes of Israel. Those are the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom that got scattered and never got regathered as a people. Well, God has never lost track of them. And God is promising, I'm going to regather all of the Hebrew people, not just the Jewish people, into one land as I promised them. Notice in verse 22, he goes on. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them. Now, this is a promise of the Davidic covenant. That God said he's going to have a king from David rule forever into one kingdom. And that's going to be King Jesus. 
So all of this is future events. And I will make them one nation upon the land of the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. That God says, I'm regathering them together, all the people into that land. Notice in verse 23, neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with their transgressions, but I will save them out of their dwelling places where they have sinned and will cleanse them so they will be my people and I will be their God. So notice what he promises them. He says, they'll no more defile themselves with their idols. The main problem that the nation of Israel had is they kept serving other gods rather than the God of the Bible. They tried to serve other gods, whether it was Baal, Ashtaroth, Ishtar. Uh, They would go to all of those other gods instead of trusting the true God of the Bible. And God said, I'm tired of it. I want you to serve me and me alone. I'm the creator God. I'm real. They're false. But they kept going to their false gods. God says that I want to (coughs) get rid of their their idols. I don't want them to have their detestable things. This is the curious arts, the sorceries, the whatever else. People turn to those things again because they're looking for some power outside of God's power. God has enough power for it all. We can trust him. He says, I don't want to deal with their transgressions, their constant sinning and walking away from them. He says, I'm going to work something in their life so they could trust me in all of their needs. Verse 24, and David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. And they should also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do this. Now, we'll talk more about this in a different lecture, but God has a promise for them. Verse 25, and they shall dwell in the land where I've given unto Jacob, my servant, where your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein and even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be prince over them forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant uh, with them. And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. So God says, this is going to be an everlasting covenant. It's not going to run out. It's not going to expire. It's going to last forever. It's an everlasting covenant. Then notice he says, I will set a sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My tabernacle should also be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God says, I'm going to set up a temple there. By the way, at the very end of Ezekiel from this point on to Ezekiel 47, all of this is going to cover this millennial kingdom and put a big emphasis on this millennial kingdom temple. This temple is going to be a big deal. This is where God is going to rule and reign. And it's such a big deal that God devotes like seven plus chapters just to this millennial kingdom temple. This is a very big deal. We'll have a whole lecture just on this millennial kingdom uh, temple later on in this series as well. Notice in verse 28. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, now understand the heathen here is just making reference to those non-Jewish people. So 
the non-Jewish people shall know that I the Lord do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forever. That there's going to be a nation that's blessed of God and everyone around knows that God loves the Hebrew people. And there's evidence of it. So we have the new covenant revisited. Let's explore something else. Let's see the fulfillment of the new covenant. The fulfillment of the new covenant. Now, one of the interesting features about this new covenant is that it cannot be fulfilled until the Hebrew people have been gathered. That's an important place. This new covenant only can take place after the Hebrew people have been regathered. So the people have to be regathered. Now, of course, we know that the whole purpose of the tribulation is to bring the Hebrew people back to God for them to realize that God was their savior and for them to willingly choose to accept Christ as their savior. Then the millennial kingdom is going to be activated and the millennial kingdom is the fulfillment of God's promises to the Hebrew people, especially concerning this new covenant, that the Hebrew people will be God's people and that God will rewrite in their flesh, in their heart, that they don't have to obey a list of rules. They just have to follow after God and they will automatically do what is right. God is keeping it simple for them. Notice if you don't mind that this is made reference to in the New Testament book of Romans. Notice with me if you don't mind in the book of Romans chapter number 11. The book of Romans chapter number 11. Of course the book of Romans deals specifically with the doctrine of salvation. And in the doctrine of salvation, God (laughs) loves his people. And in the book of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is God's heart to the Hebrew people that he has not forsaken them nor forgotten them. But he still has made a promise and a plan to work with those people and bring them back to himself. With that context in mind, notice with me in the book of Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, and notice with me in verse number 26. Romans chapter 11 and verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer. So notice this, that the covenant will not be fulfilled until after the deliverer comes back. So we know that this is going to be fulfilled after Jesus Christ comes back. That means the millennial kingdom. So verse 26 again. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion. This is a fancy word for Jerusalem. Out of Zion, the deliverer that shall uh, turn away ungodliness from Jacob, this new covenant. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So this covenant will not be fulfilled until after Jesus Christ comes back. Now we know that fits in our timeline, that during the tribulation period, God is working with the people to bring the Hebrew people back to himself. Jesus Christ is going to come back at the end of the tribulation to begin the millennial kingdom. And the millennial kingdom is the fulfillment of God working with his people and these people following after God with their new heart because of the salvation that God has offered to them. This has been the hope that God still has a plan for the Hebrew people. Now with this, we also have to place in mind the relation 
of the new covenant with the New Testament church. The relation of the new covenant with the New Testament church. Now, this is very important theologically. It may not be as important to you, but for those who study uh, theology, this becomes a very good place as we're trying to differentiate. Is the new covenant for Christians or is it not? Well, that's a very good question. As we try to discern this, we understand that Jesus died on the cross and he laid the foundation for Israel to receive this new covenant. Why did Jesus Christ die? He died to pay the price of the sins for all of the people. We had covered a different parable earlier in this series about the parable of the hidden treasure. Remember in that parable that the man went out to the field and found a treasure, a buried treasure. He dug it up, found what it is, reburied it. Then he purchased the entire field just so we could have that treasure. Jesus goes and interprets that for us, that we know the field is the world and the treasure is the Hebrew people. That in order to get his people that treasure saved, he purchased the whole field. That in order to give salvation to the Hebrew people, Jesus died on the cross. But Jesus' blood was enough to pay for the sins of the entire world, not just for a certain group of people. And because of God's promises to the Hebrew people, we get to enjoy salvation as well. I'm so thankful for that, that God did that. That was enough. Jesus' blood redeemed and purchased us. Now, the gospel is not a covenant. This is going to be that that differentiation. It may not be as big as a point to you, but those who study theology and go a little bit deeper, this becomes a big deal. The covenants were God's promises to a specific people, to the Hebrew people. That involved the Abrahamic covenant. It involved the land covenant. It involved (coughs) the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. The gospel is not a covenant. What is the gospel then? The gospel, gospel, is the revelation of salvation of God. It is God revealing himself and his salvation plan through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus has made a promise to us. He, that salvation is not a plan. Salvation is a person. That when we see Jesus for who he truly is and we receive him to ourselves, that's what salvation is. It's knowing Christ personally. It's not just an understanding of information. It is a personal relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us. It's not a covenant. It is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. The covenants are the promises God made to the Hebrew people. Now, again, that's not a big deal to you, but as you start studying theology, those terms start becoming a very big thing as you're trying to rightly divide and cut things and what belongs to who. For us, all we need to know is that Jesus Christ died for the sins of man and we're included in that. That in order to give salvation to the Hebrew people, he also offered salvation to us for forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful God. All because God made promises to the Hebrew people. So what is the relationship between saved people and Israel? Well, we get saved the same way by accepting the promises that God made to us. And we're thankful for it, that God had made promises to the Hebrew people. And in order to fulfill those promises, we also have get to enjoy it, that Jesus' blood was enough. 
If you don't mind, as we go through this again, we now see the principle of the new covenant. Now this will apply to us. What is the principle of the new covenant? When we look towards God and desire to please him, we find that we don't need a list of rules and regulations. All we have to do is keep our eyes on him and follow after him and we will automatically do what is right. Now this again alleviates so much pressure. You know, people like checklists because people like to be told what to do. Believe it or not, people like to be told what to do. They like to say, all right, this is where you, you're in bounds, you're out of bounds. But God has made it simple. We just keep our eyes on him. Just follow after him. I'm so thankful that we don't have to memorize a rules and regulations. I'm glad that we don't have to keep a checklist. All right, in order for you to be right with God, you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this. Now we understand the Bible gives us principles and the Bible teaches us how to look at him and how to follow after him. So, <clears throat> so that way we're not confused. So someone says, well, I'm looking at God and they do their own thing. If they're not reading the Bible, they're not following after God. If they're not praying, they're not following after God. We understand those are principles. It's not a checklist. It's how we get to know God. We get to follow after him. But God makes it simple. How do I know what to do is right? Well, keep my eyes on him. Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I trying to do what God's given me to do? Then I don't have to worry about am I fearing off as long as my eyes are in him and I keep taking the next step and the next step and the next step. You say, well, what happens when we do something wrong? What that tells us is that our eyes at that moment are not following after the Lord. We have our eyes on other things. We have our eyes on ourselves. We have an eyes on our situation. We have an eyes on people. When we get our eyes off the Lord, that's when we veer off course. Keeping our eyes on the Lord. We've all done that for those of us who are old enough to drive. That you're driving and then you get your eyes off something off the side. And next thing you know, you find yourself starting to veer just a little bit. Maybe you're looking in your mirror and you're trying to back up. And you got your eyes focused on something that you don't see that you're veering off, getting close to someone else. Well, (laughs) when we keep our eyes on the Lord and just take the next step and the next step and the next step, it makes it easy. What God is planning on doing in the millennial kingdom is lifting that weight of rules and regulations from the Hebrew people. They don't have to worry about, am I obeying the Sabbath law? Did I count the number of steps on the Sabbath? Did I wear my hair such a way? I mean, the Hebrew people have taken the Sabbath law. They've made it so even women cannot look at a mirror on the Sabbath day. Why? Because they may find a gray hair and feel like they have to pluck it out. And that's work. I'm glad we don't have to have that weight. Now we do have to be careful because as Christians, that's our default setting is that we want checklist. We want our list of things that we're supposed to do and not supposed to do. But all that does is become a weight and we get our eyes on the prohibitions rather than the pleasure of following after Christ. You know, (laughs) I was talking with someone uh, last week And she goes, you know, I have a hard time with church. Okay, tell me why. Because all they do is have a list of don'ts that you're supposed to do. Don't do this and don't do that. Well, I'm sorry, you've got your eyes on the wrong thing. We don't have a list of don'ts and do's. We have a list of following after Christ. And that is freeing and liberating. 
I don't have to be confined down. I have the liberty to follow after Christ. And if I follow after Christ, I will automatically do what is right. That makes it simple. That takes the weight off. And that's what God wants to do with the Hebrew people and what he is going to do with the Hebrew people in the millennial kingdom is that they just need to follow after Christ. And as they follow after Christ, they will automatically do what is right. What a great privilege. So with that, we've covered the four covenants. So let's kind of review a little bit. So we have the Abrahamic covenant. We have the land covenant or the Palestinian covenant. We have the Davidic covenant and we have the new covenant. What do these teach us? That God promised them to have a people forever. God promised them a land forever. God promised them a king forever. He promised them a throne forever. He promised them a kingdom forever. He promised them salvation forever. He also promised them abiding blessings as God dwells with them. Now, this is going to be the basis. These four covenants together are going to be the framework of the purpose of the millennial kingdom. Why do we have the millennial kingdom? To fulfill the promises God made to the Hebrew people. This is why studying the covenants are such an important study for the millennial kingdom. That when we understand these four covenants and what God is trying to get across and when he is going to get them across, we understand the millennial kingdom more. It is not for us. It is for the Hebrew people. But just like salvation, God's plan is big enough that not only do the Hebrew people get to enjoy it, we as Gentiles get to enjoy it as well. I'm so thankful that God's grace is sufficient for everyone and not just for a certain group of people. But I'm also thankful that God is a God who keeps his promises. So what do we do with this message? Well, quite simply this. Have you been following after the Lord? How do you know you've been following after the Lord? You've been doing what's right. Anytime that we're not doing what's right is evidence that our eyes are not currently on him. So how do I keep my eyes on him? How's your Bible reading? Are you getting a healthy dose of God's word? That's what we need to keep our eyes on him. How's your prayer life? Are you speaking with him? Are you having fellowship with him? Well, that's part of walking with God and following after him. If you're not speaking with God, you can't be following with him. Are you keeping your eyes on him? Are you making decisions? What's the next step? And the next step? And the next step? Just keeping making the next step and the next step and the next step. One step at a time, making God our goal, following after him, we will do what is right. You see, God has made it so the Christian life is simple. So are you simply following after the Lord? Are you keeping your eyes on him? Maybe there's an area of your life where you've got your eyes on that situation, on that person, on that hobby, on that finance, on that issue, rather than looking at God. And you know that's a stumbling block for you. It's something you trip over. It's something that causes you to not keep your eyes on the Lord, but stumble and fall. What do you need to do to remove it? What do you need to do to keep your eyes on the Lord at all of those times? What is it that needs to be adjusted in your life so you're looking at the Lord high, holy, and lifted up? 
Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.